the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good to have you with us. And uh, very pleased and privileged that you've decided to take us along to keep you company on your Thursday ride to wherever. And, of course, as it's a little bit wet, a little bit rainy, a little bit crazy out there storm-wise... We advise you to drive safely and enjoy the conversation. And, of course, we're here on Lifeline each Monday through Friday addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. And throughout our broadcast today, as we do each and every day at this time, we'll keep you posted of the road ahead, traffic reports every 10 minutes throughout the program this evening. So we get you to your destination safe and sound and and hopefully encouraged along the way. Uh, One thing that's not all that encouraging, perhaps, it's just a reality check for all of us, life in the Bay Area. If you rent a home here, you immediately know what I'm talking about. If you've bought a home here in, say, the last five, six, eight years, you also know what I'm talking about, that California... Bay Area in particular, one of the most desirous places in the entire United States, if not the planet, to live, and also coincidentally one of the most expensive ones. Median housing prices, six hundred and fifty to seven hundred thousand dollars across the Bay Area. And if you're lucky enough to live in a zip code that begins with nine four one something something, your home probably is a million dollars, even if it's just a small shack. You might have heard the word just this past Tuesday, the sheriffs showed up at sunrise to evict a group of mothers and their kids that had been squatting at a West Oakland home. The women call themselves Moms for Housing. They've been staying at the vacant property since November. Friday of last week, finally, an Alameda County judge said, that's it, enough, not your property, you got to move out. Now, the real estate firm who owns the home offered to help the women find temporary housing, but they refused. The mom said they want to purchase the home through the Oakland Community Land Trust, but the property owner, not interested. A sad story, and one I think that demonstrates just how severe and out of control this housing problem is. And, of course, we wring our hands. We continue in frustration. We see families that are struggling an increase, a severe increase, in fact, in homelessness, some of that attributable, of course, to housing prices, not all of it, but some of it. And around this, the backdrop of quality of life questions for the entire Bay Area. Think about this for a moment. If the average house cost is over a million dollars, and that means that the family is going to have to earn enough money to pay your five, $6,000 a month mortgage payment along with property taxes and insurance, what kind of money, what sort of income do you have to make? What kind of a job do you have to make? And is everybody eventually in the Bay Area going to have to work for a big Silicon Valley company in order to survive in the nine Bay Area counties? And if so, then let me ask a question. What about everybody else? I mean, aren't there certain service sector jobs 
that most logically do not pay as much. I mean, w- would you agree to pay, for example, the guy that that takes care of your landscaping the same amount of money that you would to the surgeon who cut out the cancer from your body? Probably not. There is a variance when it comes to the value we place on certain types of labor, skilled labor versus unskilled labor. So that means not all of us, most naturally, are going to all earn the same amount of money, and yet, and yet we all have the same problem. That without a lot of money, living in the Bay Area, quite frankly, is just becoming an impossibility. And I say this as a lifelong Bay Area native, that the number of friends and associates that I have that talk about wanting to get out of Dodge because they just simply can't afford it anymore is staggering. Maybe you too. So what to do about it? Well, we're going to spend some time riddling through some proposals. We're joined by Lawrence McQuillan. He's Senior Fellow and Director of the Center on Entrepreneurial Innovation at the Independent Institute in Oakland. He has recently put forward a proposal to attempt to try and wrestle through an issue that I understand, Lawrence, and by the way, welcome, that even as recent as today, our governor was in the Bay Area touring through and uh, trying to sort of um, come down to an answer for the question we've all been asking, and that is, if something's got to give, what exactly is it? Because the cost of housing in the Bay Area as it is right now is just simply reaching a point of, uh, what else do we call it, a point of no return. You're right, Craig. Um, Great to be with you again. Um, It it really is a human tragedy in the Bay Area, I mean, how much it costs to live. Just to put it in perspective, the average home price in California is about 250% above the national average, and the average rent in California is about 50% above the national average. And as we know, in places like the Bay Area or Los Angeles, it's even higher than that in terms of the comparison with the rest of the country. So increasingly people are choosing to leave, especially in the middle income uh, and lower income brackets in California, Uh, people with less education too. We've seen a net reduction or or outflow of people from California of about 1.3 million people over the last 10 years uh, have left California so we're actually depopulating the state because primarily because of the high cost of living and the high cost of housing. And, you know, if you carry this out another decade or two, I mean, what you're going to see in California is, you know, very rich people who can afford the state and uh, either homeless people or people who um, tend to the needs of, of the wealthy. And But the middle class is basically going to be gutted in the state of California if we carry these trends forward. Well, and, and let's talk about this for a minute, because you touch on what I alluded to a moment ago, and that is, yeah, you find yourself with a region that is populated by just the very wealthy. And then what becomes of the entire service sector? I mean, I know that there's a lot of discussion about, gee, we don't pay enough in minimum wages, and, you know, nobody can make a living on a job at McDonald's. Well, in my mind, nobody should be able to, in a practical sense, make a living off of a job at McDonald's, because jobs at McDonald's really ought to be seen as entry level. This is how I learn to be responsible, show up to work, do what the boss says, collect a paycheck, all of that. And, you know, unless we want to pay $98 for a hamburger, there's a practicality to all of this. And there's a practicality in terms of, you know, not everybody's going to work in Silicon Valley, like not everybody's going to be a brain surgeon or a dentist for a living. Somebody has got to change the oil in your car. Somebody has to fix 
your plumbing, repair your roof, be involved in all the service sector activities that allow society to function, and yet how is it going to happen, in, in your viewpoint, Lawrence, if we get to such a point where only the very wealthy can be here? Does that mean that the woman who cuts my hair every month is going to be commuting in from, I don't know, Patterson or further out? I mean, it just it seems to be reaching the point of being untenable. Right. I mean, you, you're right in that I think we will see a lot more people living kind of on the edges of the state in Nevada or Arizona or um, and maybe even Oregon and kind of commuting down to do service jobs in the state of California. But also, I mean, some of these service workers will get paid more to attract them to the state and allow them to live here. But there's a lot of people that we've already seen are going to flee the state and have been fleeing the state for greener pastures elsewhere where they they can get ahead much easier and pursue the american dream a lot easier in other places but i mean this is going to be a slow demographic change and it's been going on i would say for the last fifteen to uh... twenty years but it's really ramped up the last ten years and it's really going to change the the look of california i mean this used to be a place where people would would start their dreams would move to because we had the best schools and the best freeways and the best opportunities to get ahead and now it's completely changed i mean now this is where um you leave the state um as quickly as you can once you get your degree at uc berkeley or stanford and you pursue your dream elsewhere i mean that's how much has changed um, over the last 20 years. Well, I'll, I'll do you even maybe, uh, I'll, I'll match your <laughs> your observation with one of my own. Uh, being a lifelong resident of the Bay Area, I remember a time if you lived on the peninsula and you found housing availability and housing costs to be a little bit too steep, well, here's what you did. You went and moved to San Francisco. Because getting a flat in San Francisco, finding an apartment, being able to uh, to rent something or even buy something in in the city was always reasonable, always available. It was a great second alternative if you could not afford to live on the peninsula where the weather was better, there was less wind, less clouds, and, you know, better sunshine. Uh, now that's just the opposite. I, the, the, the one place that has, if of all, become completely out of bounds, so to speak, for the average family, the average income earner in the Bay Area, is the city of San Francisco. Right, yeah. San Francisco used to be the, the home for the artists and the musicians and, and people like that who um, who didn't have a whole lot of money but were pursuing their craft, their art. And that now it's it's really changed. It's not like that anymore at all now that the high-tech um, sector has moved in. But, but I think ultimately what we need to do is realize that this is a government-created crisis that the barriers to building new housing and housing development around the state have gotten so huge in terms of time and cost and delay that people choose, developers choose to build homes in other states. And it's due to a bewildering array of stakeholders and layers of government, all with veto power, that have destroyed any notion of private property rights to land use in California. I mean, it used to be a time where you could buy a piece of land and build a home or build an apartment and uh, provide housing needs uh, for people. But if you do that today, you're a criminal, literally. Um, There's so many layers of government and roadblocks in terms of permits and laws that have to be adhered to 
that um, it takes forever to build a house, so they build homes elsewhere, or they build them at um, you know what's affordable here. An affordable home in California is about four hundred thousand dollars, according to the latest estimates. In San Francisco, six hundred thousand dollars is considered an affordable home, um, and you know, nor- average income people just can't afford that. So. Um, because developers are building elsewhere, and and that's basically what's driving this is just layer upon layer of impediments to building new homes or converting older structure into residential buildings. I know that you've, uh, as you've just suggested, uh, put forward the notion that the only real solution to the current California housing crisis is to build our way out of it. But certainly, toward that degree, it raises some questions, and I want to get to those questions when we come back, because as we all need to, I think, understand, it's just not simply a matter of find a piece of land, erect a structure, sell it, somebody moves in, move on to the next There's another big dynamic here that we need to take into consideration, and that is things like infrastructure. Wow. I mean, um, anybody anybody at all can tell me the last time we put up a major freeway? And I know that the argument is, well, we need less of those because we're worried about the environment. But the reality is you need to be able to move people around. And if California government's process or progress rather so far on the bullet train being seen Sacramento and Los Angeles is any yardstick as to how fast we can build quick, reliable, sophisticated public transportation, then we're in a real world of hurt. If the answer to building more structures in the Bay Area is that we don't need more infrastructure to support the additional population, something somewhere has got to give. We're going to get back to more of our conversation, more insights. Lawrence McQuillan with us today, Senior Fellow, Director of the Center on Entrepreneurial Innovation at the Independent Institute in Oakland. We'll take this time out, come back to more. This Lifeline continues right after we get you updated on some traffic. Let's see what's going on out there. I'm looking at dark clouds right now. No rain yet, but I bet somewhere it's coming. Find out how traffic's behaving on this Thursday. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back with our conversation, Lawrence McQuillan, Senior Fellow, Director of the Center on Entrepreneurial... Easy for me to say. Entrepreneurial... (laughs) My polygrip is not working today. Entrepreneurial Innovation at the Independent Institute in Oakland. Lawrence, I bet I'm not the first one to mess that up. (laughs) You're not. No, it's not an easy word to say. Yeah, especially when you're on a roll here. We're having a great conversation about a challenge that frankly, impacts all of us here in the great state of California and certainly throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. That is the current housing crisis. I began with the story of the mothers in Oakland, which is just a a microcosm of the challenges that I think all of us face. When the bill rolls in, we look at the property taxes, we look at the, the rent payment going up month after month, year after year. We know certainly here in California, um, we saw some new laws in relationship to rental controls put in place as of January 1st. But even there, they are so broad in the number of exceptions and limits that you have to wonder at some point, um, how soon is it going to be before we just, just reach the breaking point? Right. Well, I think we're there. I mean, I think when we see so many people leaving and so many people are spending more than half their income on rent or mortgages 
it's really unsustainable. And it also makes, you know, everything else more expensive in terms of a percentage of your income. So, um, you know, just basic things like cell phones and TVs, even though the prices may be dropping, you're still, as a percentage of your income, the prices is going up because so much of your income is being used just to put a roof over your head. Um, And as I mentioned, I mean, there's just so many barriers in California to building, not only housing, but as you mentioned, even freeways or something I'm more familiar with is water. Water is vital to building new homes. Um, You can't build new homes if you can't find supplies of water. And there's, again, there's so many impediments to California to creating new sources of water to feed the new communities um, that are going to need the water in the future, especially in Southern California. Um, you know, look how long it's taken us to even get a new reservoir in the state of California. Um, dams are being taken down, not put up. So we're actually kind of reducing the water supply rather than adding to it. Now there's some, some talk of changing that and building some new reservoirs now going forward. But it's taken decades to get to this point. Um, and it, but it just kind of goes to the point that progress overall, not only in California, but across the country in America, has really slowed down. Um, I mean, think of it. At one time, we built two bridges in the Bay Area, the Bay Bridge and the Golden Gate Bridge, at the same time. I was say simultaneously, that's right. Exactly. We could never do that today. Um, and overall, I mean, people have just kind of lost that vision of imagination and, and you know, solve this problem, roll up your sleeves that we used to have. And I think it's not only in housing, but it's across the board, in water and in roads. And I think people see other people now, as, especially in California, there's kind of this culture of toxicity of people where, um, you know, we don't want their houses, we don't want their cars, we don't want their kids, we don't want them, you know, keep these people out of my neighborhood. Um, and it's really gotten to the point now where it's impossible to, or nearly impossible to get anything done quickly if not even long term so it's um you know we have just a change culture in california it used to be much more kind of a pioneer culture and let's see what we can achieve and let's get things done and but now it's 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 halt this and stop this and keep these people out and well, it's, and part it's of I think the challenge has been and i think rightfully so that we've seen some of the damage that that uncontrolled development um, has led to our environment, and we're trying to be good stewards. That's always been kind of the, the California way of thinking. And yet, you know, as you point out, and this is my concern when you say the only solution to the California housing crisis is to build our way out of it, essentially meaning make more units available, drive down prices, increase availability, and, of course, supply and demand will, will take care of itself. But if you do that, Lawrence, without serious and significant improvements to our infrastructure. You know, you touched on the water shortage, which is an ongoing problem here in the the entirety of California. Electric power, another major issue for us. And then we're looking at what we're doing on these freeways. Uh, you know, tax dollars paid to build freeways 30, 40, 50 years ago, and now they're eliminating lanes so they can put in um, the, 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 the special high-flow lanes where you're paying 8 $9 to travel on a lane that you've already paid for through your tax dollars. So the four-lane freeway becomes a three-lane freeway. And then towns like Fremont, my goodness, uh, Mayor, if you're listening, 
the Vision 2020, somebody was a little blind there when you want to reduce the intersections in such a fashion that you're making travel a nightmare and more people are sitting on the road with their car idling, waiting at the stoplight because we've come up with these designs. I mean, it just seems, Lawrence, as if everywhere we turn, we come up with ideas that don't make things easier for Bay Areans, don't ease the flow or provide an increased uh, accessibility to things like electric power and water and things of that sort. No, we want to do just the opposite. And then we talk about adding buildings, what's going to happen to the, the already diminished quality of life? We're going to become another New York here, I'm afraid, with all due respect to New Yorkers listening. Well, I mean, I think that's why I get back to the culture. I mean, I think if you had a cultural change in California that embraced progress and change and um, building, it would be not just building of housing, but it would be building across the board of, of new transportation modes, I mean, think, new things are possible. I mean, new things are being dreamed up all the time in terms of air taxis and underground uh, freeways and things like that. I mean, I, I think, you know, if we think 100, 200 years out, we're going to have some incredible new ways of getting around. Um, and, and I think we need to embrace that vision and, and be bold in terms of the direction we go. Um, but I think the worst thing to do is to to feel like we can't solve any of these problems and it's you know throw our hands up and to give up and and to say let's just keep people out of here and let's you know circle the wagons and protect what we have because that's not progress and it's also not probably reality because um you know there's a large segment of the population who does do want to see improvements and um will either try to improve it here or they'll go somewhere else and improve it and we'll fall further and further back I mean, we're already starting to get less venture capital in the valley than we used to as a percentage of you know total venture capital so we're seeing progress happen elsewhere so i think you know if we want to stay the cutting edge of 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 tech and other sectors like we've been in california i think we need to start thinking more about our culture which has i think gradually come to the point where we see people in progress as a bad thing and i think we're going to lose out a lot of opportunities not only around the country but also around the world to people who are still visionary and and want to um innovate and progress um compared to what we see here now in, in california well i think we need to as you suggest engage in some out-of-the-box thinking and, and recognize that if we stay down this path and and you know the old adage something's got to give if we stay down this path uh, we're going to price ourselves out of the market. I, I've said repeatedly, and, and I know that there are some um, business experts that know far more about the topic than I might disagree, but but I've often wondered, as the uh, the Apples of the world and the Googles of the world and the Facebooks of the world uh, continue to build buildings and bring in more employees, and we continue to see such a significant uptick in the cost of living in the Bay Area where you know, 10 years ago, if you made 50, 60 grand a year, you could you could own a home and you could be comfortable. Today, if you make 50, 60 grand a year, you're in poverty. And so it's taking more and more money to, to compensate employees so they can barely be able to eke out an existence. What happens when the day comes that somebody wakes up and they put a pin in the map in a place like, I don't know, Salt Lake City, Utah? Been there a few times. 
Nothing really memorable to me. But here's what I can tell you about Salt Lake City, Utah. Right now, you can rent a three-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath house for 1,400 square feet at $1,200 a month. And if you go online, you can find between apartments and houses for rent in the greater Salt Lake area right now as we speak, 2,487 units are available as we speak at 530 on a Thursday night. Some business wakes up and says, wait a minute. You know, uh, the people resources can be planted anywhere. My goodness, if we can pick up our company, move it to Salt Lake City, and instead of paying two hundred and fifty grand a year, we can pay them one hundred and twenty-five grand a year. They'll live like kings. Everybody makes out. What happens when that happens? It seems to me that the whole the whole Bay Area could end up collapsing. I realize it might sound a little bit far fetched, but is it really? No, I don't think it is. I mean, there are people who are talking about a tipping point in the valley where. Eventually, you know, as more investment goes elsewhere and it becomes possible to do more and more things remotely, that we're going to see a major shift away from the kind of these hubs of technology towards a much more decentralized model of technology. And I think we're starting to see that, especially in very kind of subfields like biotech and, and fintech and things like that. We're starting to see pockets emerge um, not only around the country, but around the world that specialize in these things. So we're seeing, I think, a much more decentralized approach. And I think there will come a day when uh, the valley won't be nearly as significant as it has been. Um, and in fact, I think we're kind of approaching that already. Um, in a lot of ways, the valley, and well, especially San Francisco, has become a headquarter city where you have headquarters of these companies, but a lot of the work is actually done in India or China or elsewhere around the United States. So um, because it is so expensive, you know, the only people who can afford to live here are the top C-suite uh, executives, and the rest of the people who do the work are already starting to migrate out into the countryside and around the world. So I think we're starting to see that. I think it's only going to progress. Um, but we can halt that a little bit if we get serious about the housing problem and try to build um, much faster and much quicker than what we're doing today. All right. Well, it, it certainly is. Um, it's time we start thinking out of the box in some way. And um, and certainly I think it, it's almost reaching the tipping point where we have to say everything's on the table and, and really seriously begin to be less um, – Territorial about it, I think, would be the uh, the proper term, and uh, engage in a bit of innovative thinking. Because if we don't, you know, we're all going to continue to be miserable, and the quality of life, all that attracted many people to the Bay Area in the first place, will just completely, sadly, slowly disappear. Lawrence McQuillan, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center on Entrepreneurial Innovation at the Independent Institute in Oakland. Information available on the web at independent.org. That's independent.org. Lawrence, we appreciate, as always, your time. All right, let's get you here at 533, an update on traffic from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. You know, I've been a um, traveler in and out of Oregon, Washington State, for uh, many, many years. Um, my mother lived up there and uh, loved the Pacific Northwest. Beautiful evergreen trees, uh, just, you know, spectacular views. And, and a part of the country that is uh, largely known for not only wet, soggy weather, but apparently working on increasing their reputation as being hostile 
towards religion. We've been following the case of the pastor in Spokane, Washington. Now we follow up with the case of a church, and this makes no sense at all, a church in Clackamas, which is a suburb of Portland. Um, They have a Christian education wing. The church that you go to here in the Bay Area probably has the same thing. You know, you got classrooms where you do Sunday school and so on and so forth. Well, uh, apparently a local Christian school uh, lost their building, so they went to this Christian church and said, we have a Christian school and we need classrooms. And they, at uh, Faith on Hill Church, said, huh, what do you think about that? We happen to have classrooms. So the two got together. They've got the same goal in mind. Facilities being used. Beautiful. Not apparently so to the folks in Clackamas County. Let's get a report as to what's going on. Brad Dacus joins us, constitutional lawyer. He, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Boy, the hits out of the Pacific Northwest these days, Mr. Dacus, just keep on coming, don't they? Uh, They certainly do, Craig, and uh, that's one reason why we have uh, offices, uh, one in uh, Oregon and one in Washington State. Uh, just because we're we're so busy, I think we've got it uh, combined. I think 16 cases in active litigation in those two states. So uh, it's definitely keeping busy, keeping us busy. But this is a real, uh, real important case because what we're talking about here is a uh, a church that had the space in 1977. They had it uh, conditional use permit so they could have it built, and uh, which is fantastic. So they're going to they build it. It was specifically in writing for an education wing. Um, so it's very broad, very solid. That's the purpose of it. So it was a perfect fit. And this, uh, this wonderful private Christian school, they have 30, pe- 30 kids. That's it, 30 kids. So that's not a big you know, burden on the community. And yet, um, and yet they're not being allowed... Uh, to to be able to uh, you know to, to to use the facilities according to the county, uh, you know we tried to get the matter resolved. The county is digging their heels in the ground, and now we're having to uh, you know to to take them to court, and that's what we're doing. We filed a lawsuit, and we have our great attorney Ray Hackey uh, heading up the litigation, and uh, it's just a real. It's just real unfortunate uh, that we see this kind of bullying taking place uh, outside of Portland. And why are they saying that this is, you know, in violation of the use permit and uh, zoning laws and so forth? I mean, if a school, I mean, sorry, if a church has an education wing that they use on Sundays, what would prohibit them from using that Monday through Friday? I can understand, well, you know, we have limited parking, so you can't have, you know, 500 people with 500 cars. I get that part. But that really doesn't seem to be the the basis upon which they're they're arguing here, is it? Hey, you're right. And that's what makes this so uh, interesting, because uh, you know, the reasons given have been just technical in nature, saying, well, no, the condition you permit you, you have... We say it's really not intended to be able to use for educational purposes, like you're saying. We're saying, well, what's the problem, though? Well, no, we want we want you to get another permit. And by the way, you got to pay us money for that, and you've also got to meet these new restrictions. And I, I think really their attempt is to bog them down. We've seen governments do this before, local governments, Craig. They try to bog them down with bureaucracy to the point where the church just doesn't have the resources to continue the fight to get it approved. And then they don't—they're not able to do their work. The, the unfortunate truth is, many in the in, in government in the Northwest 
don't appreciate churches, and they sure don't appreciate Christian schools teaching children from, from the Bible. And I think that is really, frankly, the underlying thrust of what we're dealing with here, and that's why we take this so seriously, because it is much deeper than just a a uh, definition of uh, the technical interpretation of a, a conditional use permit. Well, and, you know, how do you look somebody straight in the eye and say, we as the city fathers, the elders here um, of, of the community, um, uh, have a problem with you taking the classrooms built for educational purposes and using them for educational purposes? I mean, what? I read the article, and I almost thought, now, is Brad going and copying things out of the onion? <laughs> because yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it, it really doesn't. It really doesn't make sense. And that's why I'm so glad that uh, that we're there, that we have our offices there, our attorneys, um, because that's the kind of stuff we're having to deal with today is just uh, illogical bullying that requires us to step up and make sure that no pitch ever makes it past the plate when it comes to defending uh, religious freedom, and in this case, churches and Christian schools, and their ability to help kids thrive academically and spiritually in what are often uh, spiritually very challenging and dark areas of the country, like the Northwest. Well, we appreciate you sharing the story, and um, sad to hear that this is going on, but it gives us something to be uh, considering and certainly praying for, and um, do keep us surprised that this continues to make its way through, um, sadly, what looks now uh, potentially a, a, a legal battle here. There's Brad Dacus, president of the Pacific Justice Institute, with a report on the challenges being faced by Faith on Hill Church and Scopos Christian School in the Portland suburb of Clackamas. Information available on the web about Pacific Justice Institute at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. 545 traffic next from the KFAX Traffic Center. Where else? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We spend some time focusing on a part of the world that is filled with some of the most mystery and intrigue, particularly for overseas travelers that have ever been there. You know that the sights, the sounds, the noises, the, the places certainly capture and tend to cater to absolutely every one of the senses. That said, this part of the world also has one of the fastest growing populations, the fastest growing economies, and the fastest growing branches of the church. We're talking, of course, about the continent of India. And joining me today in studio, who is here on behalf of our friends at Mission India, we are so delighted and pleased to have Pastor Sam with us today. And Pastor Sam, welcome. Good to see you. Thank you, Craig. It's my pleasure to be here in your studio today. We hear so much about India in the news these days, sometimes about politics, sometimes about the skirmishes and challenges taking place in some of the neighboring states, places like Kashmir, certainly Pakistan, uh, certainly much in the news to talk about India as kind of the, the other Silicon Valley, the other major computer hub of the world. But aside from the political questions, the economic questions, the growth that's taking place in India today, there's that other big important part of the story that I think my listeners in particular are really interested in and concerned about, and that is what God is doing in India today. The growth of the church there. Tell us what's happening. Well, Craig, uh, India is a country with a lot of paradoxes. 
you have extremely rich there are extremely poor extremely educated extremely illiterate extremely religious extremely forgotten this dichotomy you know goes on and on in every sector you talk about politics economics social structure and of course in the church there are big churches and we praise god for them but at the same time in 1.2 billion people in our country today only 3.7 know the name of jesus christ and the churches in cities by and large in every part of the country you have a big churches which are called the mainline churches mainline denominations they're more bogged down with a kind of a, a, a work within the compound walls of the church and the great commission work has not been taken seriously so far that is one of the main reason why we are unable to reach the unreached unengaged people groups in our country there are 4 4635 different people groups in our country out of that only 1000 of them are reached today so when you talk about a composite of what the the 1040 window looks like the whole mm-hmm. missions opportunity window for the world today there's probably no better example of the need in terms of the variety of languages and people groups and physical geographical territory and religions than india today mm-hmm. it's almost as if india is a microcosm of the the world missions picture you're right uh there are people who speak 1600 different languages and dialects in our country wow and uh, bible is very closely translated to translated into 100 languages not more than that and there is a great opportunity now today because doors are wide open for the gospel even though there are persecutions animosity you know there are oppositions there are kind of a state laid laws of anti conversion laws and so on and so forth that's the one side of the story but other side we see the spirit of the lord is speaking uh, sweeping over the country uh, more vibrantly than ever before you know people are seeking for truth for years of their struggle and efforts for finding who's a real god today people are trying to come to a point okay he is a jesus christ is a real true living god you know pastor sam the scripture tells us about the places in which the seeds can be sown and they can go into rocky soil and really not produce much or sand and not much they can also go into fertile soil and then bear forth a strong tree with much good fruit it it, it strikes me given the degree of religiosity we'll call it of, of india uh hinduism of course the predominant religion there though mm-hmm. we see a lot of influence of islam particularly toward the north mm-hmm. uh i guess it can singularly be said of india one thing for sure there's a tremendous spiritual hunger amongst the indian people isn't there there is um if you i mean since you made a mention of uh, the hinduism there you know uh we have uh, 300 million gods and goddesses and a lot of gurus movements you know um not only indians you know the indian religiosity attracts even the other country people you know coming to india to learn about the culture religion and so on and so forth and uh, hindus you know they are very very religious as you rightly said they have a deep passion to know the truth 
deep passion to know god and uh, in search of that they go from place to place temple to temple god after god but the end of the day do they have a hope do they have a love do they have uh, accomplished what they're uh, seeking for the answer is no mm. so there is a kind of a disappointment kind of a frustration you know um that uh, prevails in uh, in the minds of the people well if you're constantly seeking a god that cannot be found or constantly trying to appease god or to not make god angry at you or jealous you can readily understand why there's such a tremendous sense of a lack of fulfillment or satisfaction i i the contrast in my first trip into india and going into a hindu temple and seeing the priests there oftentimes wearing robes and with uh, paint on their faces and ringing bells and engaging in incantations and the burning of incense and the lighting of candles and all of this and i, I was struck by the knowledge that man is working awfully hard to try and appease god and reach god but there's a stark contrast between that sense of man trying to reach up to god and the message of jesus christ we were talking a bit about this off the air elaborate on that point would you particularly in terms of how you go about sharing the good news of jesus christ with this unknown god the god of isaac and jacob and abraham uh there is a lot of uh, um see one side we talk about the religiosity and the passion you know to know god reach god appease god and the other side you know uh we find what the what the bible says what bible talks about it you know um it's not me going and seeking god instead in the bible we find that you know god is seeking the lost the bible says he has come to the seek the lost and um, it's not god demanding from me something it is me demanding god mm. you know those are the things that you know um uh, or the points where you know um people come in contact with okay i think here is a god who's seeking for me the image of the shepherd leaving the 99 leaving sheep the 99 and you know to find the one one you know that is something it's not me giving sacrifice he has sacrificed for me it's not me doing bloodshed it is he who shed his blood on the cross of calvary so some of these things you know and uh, the one important thing craig here a lot of them they don't understand how how does this beautiful creation has come into existence because there is no mention of the beginning of the world and there is no mention of the ending of the world well and the belief system is very cyclical in that sense mm-hmm. if i have bad karma this time around maybe next time i'll come back it'll be better i'll yeah. be different and the cycle goes over and over and over again that sets up a tremendous sense of hopelessness i would think you're right and somehow they wanted to come out of that cycle and they have no way out and jesus comes and tells that i am the way the truth and the life that is where you know 
the cycle is broken mm-hmm. in other words they are delivered from the cyclic and now i talk about the beginning and you have an eternal we'll take a brief time out in this juncture in the conversation we'll come back to more of our look at what god is doing in india today our conversation with pastor sam from mission india continues in just a moment here on this edition of lifeline <laughs> 